There's something maybe a little different that I do is I spend a lot of time getting to know the firms. You know, having worked at a lot of different firms, I saw firms that had a better system to provide better outcomes than others, right? So it's really important that they have a good system. It doesn't mean that their strategy is going to be the best every time they roll it out from an active perspective. But if the firm is better and the firm is set up for success, there's a high degree of probability that those specific funds or strategies they're running are going to also have some success. Welcome to the Active Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Harbor Capital. Join us as we learn from pros who have helped thousands of investors live better lives. I'm Brian Moore, and I'll be chatting with some of the brightest minds in the financial advisory business, bringing you insights on practice management and investment research that works for advisors and their clients. Joining me today on this episode of the Active Advisor Podcast is Bill Doherty, CFP, CFA. Bill is a wealth and portfolio manager at Main Street Financial Solutions with over 22 years experience in the financial services industry. From his deep knowledge of capital markets to his belief that investments are the keystone of financial independence, Bill helps individuals and families to clarify their financial goals and create a plan to enrich their lives and the lives they care about most. Outside of the office, Bill generously donates his time to several charitable organizations. He lives in the great state of Pennsylvania with his wife and three children, and in his not-so-spare time, he enjoys fishing, golfing, and music. Welcome, Bill, and thanks for joining us. Great, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here today in the smoggy Philadelphia weather we're having here with these fires. So hopefully everybody's staying healthy. Yes, definitely. Well, they're talking to a couple of counterparts. I think there is some reprieve coming our way from the north. So yeah, we need the winds to start blowing another direction here. So exactly. Before we get started, typically kind of our first question, I wanted to pivot here and uh, break with tradition and ask you something about something that I know is important to you. You're a big supporter of the PA chapter of Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and you have a big event coming up. Would you mind sharing a little bit about the event and your involvement with the foundation? Yeah, Brian, thanks for the question. I appreciate it. So I've been involved with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation for about a decade. It's a cause that's near and dear to my heart. My daughter, Emma, who's now 20, was diagnosed when she was 10 years old. So step back 10 years ago, I had no idea what this disease was. I had no idea it affected the millions and millions of people that it does across the United States. Now, thankfully, my daughter Emma is doing really well. She's got a great treatment program, great doctors, terrific nurses. But when you're going through that experience with a child, it's very, very emotional. And, you know, I try to find the positive in everything. And I know once we kind of got her treatment plan in place, I thought, how can I start to learn more about this disease and how can we make a positive influence and maybe to make a difference and help? And I get introduced through some mutual friends to someone who worked on the national board for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. I reached out to him. I was proactive. And he suggested that I talk to the local chapter and I got involved. They're terrific people. It's been great to be involved with the organization. And we started by supporting their Take Steps Walk and starting a team called Emma's Entourage, again, about a decade ago. And we've been able to raise significant funds, but more importantly, to raise awareness for this disease. You know, I get to reach out to my network. I've had so many people come back to me and tell me that they've suffered from this disease. Their kids have suffered. They know someone. They have a friend. And we've been able to connect them with support and resources, you know, to help them really connect with the right people or maybe find new doctors. Mm-hmm. And it's really been great to be able to kind of give back. And we're really, really excited. We have our Take Steps Walk actually upcoming at Lincoln Financial Field. So we get to partner with the Philadelphia Eagles and Lincoln Financial Field. So we have our big walk, which is scheduled for June 25th, coming up at the end of the month. We're the number one walk in the country. So they have walks like this in all the big cities all around the United States. And you know, I'm proud to say the Philadelphia chapter is number one. And, and we're getting close to being a million dollar walk. 
which is pretty remarkable. So the team does a great job. We have a great attendance. If anybody wants to come out and attend, it's a free event. It's a family fun festival event. We have bands, we have player appearances. If you're part of a team and feel free to join my team, Emma's Entourage, if you're looking for a team, but you can get a tour of the locker room and see the Super Bowl trophy. It's just a really a great day out. And I think for those that are suffering from disease and get to go to an event like this, who may be feeling isolated, feeling alone. There's obviously a lot of people have mental health issues around these types of issues. It's just a great community event where we all get together and can share experiences. And I think people feel part of the IBD community and know that they're not going through Crohn's or colitis or anything, you know, internally with your bowels and these types of diseases alone, right? So it's a really good event. We're thrilled to continue. We're thrilled to partner with Eagles and Lincoln Financial Field. And we think this is going to be our biggest event yet. So yeah, thanks for bringing it up. It's something obviously near and dear to my heart. I'm really happy to report my daughter Emma's doing really, really well with the disease and she's managing well. No, that's great. That's yeah. great. So we're going to shift gears from that because we always like to start the conversation, but I did want to make sure we were able to talk about that and highlight that because that is something that I know is very important to you and it is to a lot of people. But what was your first memory that you have related to money or investing? I remember one of the first jobs I had. I actually worked at the Friendlies in Fort Washington, which is right down the road from where I live in Ambler. I got some extra money. I opened a bank account. My mom helped me do it. And I remember putting money in like a savings account. And then like I got a statement and I looked at it and I was like, okay, like I'm supposed to get interest in this account. And I think I got like four cents of interest. And I remember thinking like, that's not very much. You know, I thought I was going to get like hundreds of dollars and I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And, you know, it's just a, maybe a thousand dollars worth of savings. So I quickly learned that. Banks are great and a great place to put money and have a checking account and to store money. But sometimes the interest rates aren't necessarily that great. So you have to shop those around and understand how that works. It taught me a lot about saving there. But I think from an investing perspective, I learned a lesson really early in my career. So I worked for an asset management firm and I started in the late 90s. And I didn't really have a background in finance coming into the industry. And I was working in a call center and, you know, wasn't making a ton of money, but I was learning. I was getting licenses, securities licenses, things like that, talking to shareholders and financial advisors and brokers, you know, representing the asset management firm. And I had no money, so I could barely pay my bills. I was living at home. I was driving a little Honda Civic. I was trying to save up and buy a ring because I was thinking about getting engaged. But I, I went up getting a bonus and I had like an extra thousand dollars. And I remember being like, wow, this is a lot of money. And at the time, this was in the late 1990s. So if you remember, the late 1990s was the tech craze, the tech bubble. And that's when I started. And I thought, man, I just need to get some extra dollars. I need to run out there and buy some of these high-flying technology names. And I'm going to be rich in like five years and retire. Like that's what my mind, that's how I was thinking about the markets and investing. So I got the $1,000. I invested it. And at that time, the firm I worked for had just launched a technology and innovation fund that was dedicated to tech. I thought this is perfect timing and everything was sold with a lot of commissions back in those days. So I was able to get it without a commission. So I thought I got a really good deal not paying like the 6% commission you know, on this, like I'm getting it at a discount. And Brian, I invested that $1,000 in like late 1999 and then watched it six months later get cut in half. And at the time it felt like, I can't believe this just happened. I needed that money. As I reflect back, you know, almost 25 years on that, it was one of the best lessons I ever got in investing. You had an appreciation for the risk in the markets. You realize that there's a lot of hot product that gets pushed out there that's me too type product. You learn that the masses can get very euphoric around things and bid things up that make no sense. And that really helped kind of I think spur my learning and wanting to learn more about the markets, risk management, 
that's what kind of pushed me and in getting involved with the CFA program. It helped me just really start to say, okay, there's got to be a better way to do things. So it is something that I, you know, I think about quite a bit, but it was a great lesson to learn early in my career, you know, with my own money, like, wow, what am I going to do? But looking back on it, it's probably one of the best things that ever happened. Yeah, it's crazy. At the time, that was all the money you had in the world. And now looking back, that lesson taught you it was so cheap, but it was so kind of poignant and painful at the time that it's, you know, it's really impacted the way you approach the markets going forward. Yeah. Brian, you ever heard the expression from Larry Bird? He said, losing hurts more than winning feels good, you know? And you learn a lot from those losses. You learn a lot from those pain points, those mistakes. And at the time, they feel like, oh, wow, you know, I can't move forward from this. But as you look back on them, you're like, man, I'm kind of glad those lessons happened. You just have to be able to pick yourself up and find the lesson in it and the learning in it. No, very true. Very true. With over 22 years in the industry, you've had a unique journey spanning from the asset management side to the advisory side, which is where you're at today. Can you walk us through that journey and talk a little bit about how it's helped shape your business model? Yeah. So, you know, spent about 20 years on the asset management side. And I was very, very fortunate to work for some terrific companies, to work with some great people. I feel honored and privileged to be able to build out teams, to hire a lot of people, to build strategy for firms, and to work and engage with clients of all shapes and sizes. But I think through that time, I learned a couple of things about the financial advisory business and the clients we served. The first one was that the average advisor and the larger advisors were aging. Probably at the time when I was kind of thinking this, they're probably in their late 50s or probably in their early 60s or mid 60s at this point. And I saw that there was a big challenge when you asked advisors, what were their plans for the future around succession or their contingency plans? Many were buttoned up and had a great plan in place, but many, many did not. And I saw a big gap there, which I think still continues today. And then you saw this whole cohort of wealth that has been built over the last few generations, the baby boomers and beyond, are one of the richest generations in history. And when you'd ask advisors, well, how are you thinking about the next generation of their clients? They're going to move all this money to their kids, their grandkids, the charity. And again, some advisors had it buttoned up and exactly what they were doing with it. You know, others would say things like, Hey, that's great. You know, my largest client, you know, I know their son really well. He has an account with me. And then you'd ask a question like, well, what about, do they have any other kids? Well, yeah, they have six other kids. I'm like, do you have a relationship with them? And the answer is like, well, no. And you kind of sat there and went, oh, well, maybe they're not as well prepared as they could be for this next generation, this sort of massive wealth transfer. And then, you know, having gone out and worked with advisors and institutions of all shapes and sizes and different business models through the years. I did thousands of meetings myself and with people on my team and and got to meet a lot of really great folks. And there were some really, really good advisors out there doing great work for their clients, focused on their clients. But there were also a lot of advisors I felt that weren't as good and maybe were a little more conflicted in what they were doing, whether it was a firm they were working for, their business model, maybe they were selling product and they were going product first and not really focusing on the client outcome. And then how do we serve those clients the best? And I saw all three of those sort of dimensions at like a higher level. I thought there's really an opportunity still in this marketplace, even after being in the market 20 years and thinking it's evolved a lot, which it has, there's a tremendous opportunity to go out and help and serve people. And that really drives me when I get up in the morning is how do I help and serve people? How do I protect them from getting bad advice? How do I be objective and really get them the best possible outcome they can to meet their life and financial goals? So if I kind of fast forward now two years into this, almost two years into this, that first piece I talked about on succession side, I'm actually working on a succession plan with an advisor I've known for 20 years. 
And it's been a very successful transition thus far. And we're going to do that over five years. So I checked that box, you know, like in real time. And then one of my first clients that I onboarded was the son of a wealthier family. I didn't realize that at the time, but his advisor was his parents' advisor. And they were aging and really weren't paying as much attention to the next generation or giving the service they need. So one of my first clients sort of checked the second box. And then the third box was really around just, you know, doing things the right way, being client focused, thinking client first in a fiduciary manner. And one of the first clients I onboarded, I won't mention firms or point anybody out, but, you know, I got to look at the statement. I thought, wow, why do you have all these things? What's going on here? And it took us about a year or so to kind of unwind things and get the plan built correctly, reduce their costs, their fee structures, and really get our hands around all the things that they had been sold through the years. But I saw it firsthand, Brian, right out of the gate. I mean, within the first six months of starting the practice. So I knew I was on something here where I could help and serve people. And there's just a lot of confusion out in the marketplace. So I think there's a great opportunity to help and serve people. Well, that's great. I guess sitting in the advisory seat as somebody who's kind of had 20 plus years kind of on the asset management side, is it as kind of tough as you thought it was going to be? Well, one, paperwork stinks. There's a lot of paperwork. So where you said there's probably not as much paperwork, right? And in my previous roles, it just wasn't as paperwork intensive. So that's a lot. Now, technology, I mean, I can't imagine what the business was like 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Technology's come a, a long, long way. You know, I think technology will continue to grow to help people serve clients better, to help advisors be more efficient so they can spend more time doing financial planning work and reviewing portfolios and finding good investment ideas. So that piece is really tough. The other thing is it can be very distracting. You know, you can jump from one topic to the next. So that's a big challenge. You really have to be thoughtful of your time how you organize your time and be really intentional with your time. That's a challenging piece because you can get pulled in a lot of different directions from clients who have very different needs. So that would be the biggest difference or kind of change from being on the other side of the fence, so to speak. No, definitely. I mean, you can see that dynamic playing out. Building on that, advisors face challenges regardless of where they sit in the industry and regardless of firm structure. What are some of the challenges that you face specific to operating independently? Yeah. So, Brian, I talked a little bit about it earlier. I think you know, being independently, it's how do you be intentional with your business? Mm-hmm. Again, you can get pulled in a lot of directions. I've been fortunate to plug into with my business model into an RIA, a registered investment advisor that Main Street Financial that I respect and did my diligence on and that helps me from the business perspective, right? You know, managing the business end, the payroll, the compliance, all those different pieces that enables me to really focus more on my clients. And that was really intentional. But, you know, I work with a pillar system. I have a lot of processes in place that I've used through the years that help me stay focused on the things that are in the best interest of my clients so I don't get too distracted. So that's a big challenge independently. I think as an independent too, you have to realize that you have to add resources, whether that's technology or staff. I mentioned paperwork and you know, all the things that go into servicing clients, they can get really distracting, one from serving your clients or growing your business. So you have to know when to add resources, whether that's you know someone from administratively to help you or maybe another advisor. Because as in the independent world, sometimes you can get stuck just being alone, kind of a sole practitioner, or maybe having you know one person helping you on the operational side. And I think just having a mindfulness of, hey, to grow the business or to serve our clients better, you have to make those investments back into your team that it's inevitably going to benefit your clients. And that can be a challenge because as an independent, you're kind of like out on your own and you're not part of a bigger firm or group. 
No, I mean, it's definitely just hearing from you and having my own experience. It's definitely important to find the right partner that will help you save time and be able to service your clients more efficiently. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Main Street has a good platform when I plugged into them because they have other advisors too. So I have the best of both worlds. I get to operate independently, grow my business, but I also get to tap into other advisors and share their collective knowledge and wisdom, which is great because there's no shortage of situations that come up. People's financial situations are all different the products that they have or that they're were recommended in the past. So every day is a challenge. Everybody's situation is a little unique and different. I like to say everybody's financial situation is like a puzzle, you know, their own unique puzzle and you have to put the puzzle together. So your last role before going independent was the head of Northeast division at Hartford Funds, where you were leading sales and relationship management across all segments of financial advisors, DC consultants, and RAs. Curious as to why you made the decision to go independent and say not, I wouldn't say the wires, but maybe like an LPL or a Raymond James. I mean, is it the level of independence? What was the guiding, I guess, your North Star on that? Yeah. So like, as I mentioned before, I've seen all the different business models. So I've had exposure both at the advisor level, but also at the home office levels, you know, working with all the major firms. Early on in my career, you know, I started on the asset management side as a relationship manager working with registered investment advisors. So it was more of a cottage industry, I think, 20 years ago. It's become much more mainstream today, right? And I went to the Schwab conference and, you know, all these different areas. Like, wow, this is a whole different world than, you know, commission salespeople and brokers. So I think early on, I said, this is a great model. So being impressionable in my young 20s, I thought this is a better model. I like the way that this fits. So to me, I always viewed the optimal model as you know having an independent fiduciary registered investment advisor, and then being able to plug into a platform like a Schwab, a Fidelity, or a TD Ameritrade. And I think having that separation, if you will, is a good thing. It's great for clients because when clients, we open up new accounts, we can use multiple custodians. They're sending their money to somebody else. So there's a check and a balance from a risk management perspective. We're the investment advisor on the account, right? So I think having that separation is actually good. And then if they have accountants and lawyers and other people they work with, we'll partner with them as well. So I think from a risk perspective and for having multiple eyes and lenses on someone's financial life, I think that model works well. I know, I think you mentioned LPL or maybe Raymond James. I mean, they have platforms as well, I think, that are more custody only for RAAs. And I think they've grown. I was thrilled that when I joined Main Street, that they have a great partnership with Schwab, with TD Ameritrade, and more recently, Fidelity. Because to me, they were leaders in the space. This is core to what they do. I actually worked at Schwab as well for a little while. So I had very positive things from working. There was a great firm to work for. So that's how I kind of view the world is sort of there's the custody side and then the advisory side. And that model works well. And if we need to change custodians because we feel like they're not serving our clients well, or they come into some sort of an issue, we're free to move those clients you know, with their consent to wherever we think is the best serve them. Well, speaking about clients, let's focus on a couple of client-related questions. You hold the belief that investments are the keystone of financial independence. In what ways do you help people who might not come from generational wealth to achieve this independence through investing? Yeah. So look, it's a simple formula save, right? It's how much you put in and then how much you take out. And so a lot of younger folks come to us and, you know, they're doing well in their career and like, don't buy the Porsche, you know, don't buy whatever the car is, the big fancy, the BMW. You mean the minivan? (laughs) Buy the minivan, you know, buy the Honda, you know, but whatever, put some money away because the greatest asset you have if you're younger and you don't have a lot of money, but you have some capacity to save or can save is time. You know, time is the great equalizer in investing. You know, done consistently through time, 
with a disciplined approach that, that is unemotional, doesn't get caught up when I, you know, the mass hysteria happens that we talked about in the 90s, mm-hmm. or when the meltdowns happen and they're going to happen and they happen from time to time and getting panicked and selling everything. Having a disciplined approach that's consistent through time, saving, really, really important. And it really adds up. It's not pretty. It doesn't win you like friends at the cocktail party saying like, hey, I dollar cost average every month. And, you know, I'm slowly building up my nest egg. And in 20 years, it's going to look great. Like there's not a lot of pizzazz to that, but that works for people. I've watched it work. You know, I've lived it in my own life. But there's also some like just tactical things you can think about. In my recent newsletter, I wrote about, you know, saving at a young age. So I'll use my daughter, Emma. We talked about her earlier, right? You know, she's had earned income. She's been pretty responsible in school. She hasn't spent all of her money. She had extra money left over. She's going to be working again all summer and in the school year. So, you know, we started her Roth IRA at age 20. Nice. You You can do that. You know, there's little tactical things you can do to help save and invest. And What's great about that is not only is she going to save and invest, but it gave me an opportunity as a parent to really educate her on how to save and how to invest, you know, how to be an independent woman and, and take charge of your money. And she kind of rolled her eyes at me. But then when I started to show her like, hey, if you do this for like 10 years and you get X amount of return and you save for 40 years, like this is the amount of money you could potentially have in the future. And then she's like, wow, dad, that's kind of cool. Like, you're not as big of a loser as I thought, you know? So there's little things you can do there. And the other thing is like tactically, like I was just on the phone with a client this week. So I work with a lot of executives. It makes sense, right? Because that's what I was as, you know, in the corporate space. And there are people that are like me, not exclusively, but they tend to be a lot of my clients. And it happens to be that a lot of my clients are in financial services too, because that's my natural network of people. Which you would think that they're the people in financial services would have all their financial affairs in order, but it's sort of like the shoe cobbler's kid that has no shoes. So it sort of surprised me. I didn't intend that way. But one of the things, just more tactically, is just really reviewing their benefits package, going through their 401k plans, deferred comp plans. Like people sometimes lose track of, hey, I'm over 50. I have a catch up provision in my 401k plan that I can utilize. Or Maybe my 401k plan has after-tax contributions that are eligible for Roth rollovers or things like that. So we're spending some time. So, you know, don't necessarily need to have huge inherited generational wealth, but there's some things you can do along the way, whether in your 20s, your 30s, or even, you know, executives in their 40s and 50s that can help you save more and really leverage all the areas of the tax code you can. Another area would be like health savings accounts. These are terrific savings vehicles. So Aside from just saving, the simple answer of, of saving and investing and paying yourself first, there's also things you can do at various stages of your life. And many people do this great, but my experience been the last couple of years is that there's usually a few things in there you can tweak that can help people leverage their existing assets a little bit better. So outside of investing, what are some of the ways you add value for your clients to help them achieve their financial and life goals? I mean, definitely you've talked about savings and other things. I'm just wonder if you have anything else that you've picked up along the way. Yeah. So, I mean, the investing piece is obviously really important to make sure you're managing risk, you know, and making sure that you have the right goals and objectives in place to help people meet their goals and line up with their investing strategies. We do financial planning work and I really like doing the planning work, retirement planning. You know, we touch on areas like estate and tax, but we're not lawyers. So we don't draft documents. We're not CPAs, but we love to coordinate with all the professionals they work with. We find that the best relationships we have, we get to the best outcomes is when we can work as a team with their lawyers, their estate lawyers, or their accountants. One of the other areas too is, you know, inevitably your financial life touches all different aspects of your life. So as you age, you got to start dealing with things like Medicare and it's very confusing. There may be elder care issues you need to think about. As an advisor, people come to us with these 
challenges. And we don't necessarily have all the answers. We can kind of give them our opinions, but we try to serve as a connector of these different resources to professionals that we trust that give really, really good advice. And we feel that goes a really long way. We love it when people come to us with a problem and then we're able to help guide them to the right people. So I think it goes a lot further than just managing the portfolios. It's really getting into people's lives and helping them find some peace and helping them really meet their goals. And then on the financial services side, you know, my background, a lot of clients are in financial services. So I'm always trying to help them with their business. Sometimes they're calling on advisors. So I'll, I'll give them my sort of two cents around being on both sides of the equation. Here's how I would think about things, or here's what I've learned from my new experience. And hopefully that helps them just in their careers and their lives as well. So that, I think that's been something a little unique because in that space that a lot of other advisors really don't have that perspective. So I try to use my unique perspective to kind of help them above and beyond just their investment portfolios and their financial plans. Well, that's awesome. So in all the years you've spent working with advisors, what were some of the common traits that you admired most about the more successful advisors? And how have you incorporated that into your practice today? Yeah. So I think that the best advisors just focused on client objectives. They focused on their clients. They did so in an unconflicted way and they didn't try to sell product. They weren't trying to push high commission things on people and they cared. You know, they cared about what happened to their clients. They weren't just a number. And you know, this is very, very important work that we do. And I think it really helps people with their life and helps them achieve their goals. And just that unconflicted view, it's like running a race and you're like a lap ahead. You know, it's a four lap race. And, you know, it's not to mean that other people are doing things wrong. It's just, it gives you a head start and it sets the stage, I think, better and the framework better having that. So that's really, really important. And I think the really, really good advisors that I've watch through the years, they're forward-looking. They're trying to think about what's the next thing, whether it's using technology to help better serve their clients, different products, different strategies. It's not resting. There, there's so much changes in this world. Tax codes change. You know, you have to be adaptable. You have to be able to meet clients where they are. And I think being at the front end. So it just requires, I think, an extra level of diligence and staying on top of things, talking to a lot of people, being really proactive and understanding what's going on in the marketplace. Those would be a few things, Brian, I think that I've learned through the years. That's awesome. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing your perspectives. One last question before we wrap up the segment. We at Harbor believe wholeheartedly in active management, but every financial professional has their own take. What's your philosophy and where does active matter most? I mean, my background is on active management, right? And I've watched the growth of index investing and passive. And my take on things is that there's a place for everything, right? It's not one or the other. This isn't a binary conversation. I think when we're building portfolios for clients, you know, we think about diversifying risk. We're constantly thinking about risk. You know, there can be risk in active management. And it's just really, really important that you get to know the strategies and more importantly, the firms as well that are managing the strategy. Something maybe a little different that I do is, I spent a lot of time getting to know the firms. You know, having worked at a lot of different firms, I saw firms that had a better system to provide better outcomes than others, right? So it's really important that they have a good system. It doesn't mean that their strategy is going to be the best every time they roll it out from an active perspective. But if the firm is better and the firm is set up for success, there's a high degree of probability that those specific funds or strategies they're running are going to also have some success. So we spent a lot of time there. But I think this mix of, of active and passive I get a little concerned when the masses are doing things. So there's a lot of money that's flowed into the cap-weighted passive strategies. And there's a place for those. But you know the S&P 500 cap weight has never been more concentrated. And so there's risk. And I think we're always trying to educate our clients on what that risk might look like. And if things roll over, what that could mean in their portfolio. So I think it's this combination of active and passive and not putting all your eggs in one basket, diversifying making sure you understand the risk in the portfolios and, and really spending a lot of time on the active side at the firm level 
think it's really, really important. And then you're not chasing hot products. You're not chasing the Me Too products. You get to know the firm. You get to know their culture, why they do what they do, why they've launched strategies. And I think that just is an extra level of risk management. I didn't see a lot of advisors doing that as much when I was out in the field at the firm level. So I thought that was a way to kind of help us provide really good outcomes for clients in the long term. No, I think it's great insight for everybody to kind of keep in their back pocket and their mind. Lastly, how can people find you? What's your social media website, company website? Yeah. So I'm not a social media guru, but I, I mean, LinkedIn is an area you can find me. I do actively post on LinkedIn. So I'm out there. You know, you can go to our website at Main Street Financial Solutions. If you Google it up, I think it's MainStreetFinancial.com. You can find me there and my email address is there. I do put out a newsletter as well. I email it. So you know, it's called Planning Markets and Mindset. I'm happy to send that out to anybody who just wants to hear a quick idea. It's, it's very plainly written. So I use the example of the Roth IRA with my daughter. That was my last newsletter, just talking about how you can set that up for your kids. And we send those out maybe every six to eight weeks. So we try to you know just get good ideas out. And they're usually lessons I learn from clients in real life situations and that can help people. So we have the newsletter. You can try LinkedIn. You can try our website at Main Street Financial Solutions would be the best places. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much. So now we're going to move on to the lightning round or 60 seconds with Bill. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Here we go. Nickname. Doc. Hobby. I like playing guitar. I'm fishing and a little bit of golf. Profession if you weren't an advisor. I mean, it'd be great to be a musician. Last thing you watched for fun. What, Ted Lasso? Best place you've ever golfed. You know, there's a lot of great courses right here in, in the Philadelphia area. Most used emoji in text messaging. The, like yeah. crying laughing one. Favorite family activity. Despite the red hair and freckles, we go to the beach a lot. My 10-year-old has really gotten into chess. We've been playing a lot of chess recently, which has been nice. kind of fun. More important for advisors to be good listeners or good investors? Listeners, 100%. Hidden talent. Growing up, I could jump really high. 60-40 portfolio, a classic or a relic? Classic. Bucket list vacation destination. National parks. Last concert you attended? Big Head Todd and the Monsters. Favorite way to get active? I do run a little bit. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just getting started, the Active Advisor brought to you by Harbor Capital offers professional insights for the financial advisor community. Visit us at harborcapital.com to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to The Active Advisor on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on investment trends, tried and tested research methods, and what your industry peers are up to. From all of us at Harbor Capital, thanks for tuning in. And now for important disclosures. This material is for informational purposes and is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of 8th of June 2023 and are subject to change. The opinions expressed by the speakers do not necessarily represent the views of Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. to be reliable and are not necessarily all-inclusive and are not guaranteed as to accuracy. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. Such information may include, among other things, projections and forecasts. There is no guarantee that any of these views will come to pass. This material may not be representative of the experience of other individuals. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the viewer. 
This material is not legal, tax or accounting advice. Please consult with a qualified professional for this type of advice. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Stock markets are volatile and equity values can decline significantly in response to adverse issuer, political, regulatory, market and economic conditions. Fixed income investments are affected by interest rate changes and the creditworthiness of issuers. As interest rates rise, the values of fixed income securities are likely to decrease. Specific companies and issuers are mentioned for educational purposes only and should not be deemed a recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Any companies mentioned do not necessarily represent current or future holdings of any investment products. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. This material is prepared by Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. is not affiliated with Main Street Financial Solutions LLC. All trademarks or product names mentioned herein are the property of their respective owners. Copyright 2023 Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. All rights reserved.